Hey y'all, it's Luke. I want to jump right into this conversation with Kitty Klitsky of FutureWise about the importance of updating kind of an obscure state law called the Urban Growth Management Act. It's obscure insofar as it's not like the sexiest bill in the world, but if you've ever gone to um, a native prairie or forest just outside the outskirts of Spokane, there's a good chance that that is still there for you if it's not like state land or public land or a park or something. It's still there because of the urban growth boundaries that are created by the Urban Growth Management Act of like 1990. It basically puts bounds around how far urban growth can spread into rural spaces or undeveloped spaces. And it has worked really, really well for 30 years, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't get better. And actually it needs to get better because there's some pretty massive gaping, glaring loopholes that have affected Spokane County specifically in ways that have been extremely costly for taxpayers and ratepayers, and have destroyed natural habitat that didn't need to be destroyed if we had built more properly. And if developers hadn't been able to exploit these loopholes that don't make any sense. But I'm going to let the conversation carry the majority of this because it's a lot of, it's complex, but it's also fun. Kitty is an incredibly funny, acerbic person. And I really love talking to her. And I think it's going to come through in this interview. She's just really, really fun. Her, her anger is pure, but it also is tinged with a humor that I think, uh, range heads are going to like. Before we get into it, just a couple clips to set the scene, and then we're just going to jump in. So to start, this is sort of an analog to our previous conversations about dense housing in the core of Spokane and why that doesn't happen currently. And without the Growth Management Act, we'd have much, much worse sprawl than we already have. So here's that explanation, for, starting with me and then going to Kitty. And insofar as the land at the hinterlands tends to be cheaper, there's a there's an economic incentive for developers to develop the cheapest land they can find. And therefore, there becomes an incentive, like an economic incentive, unless it's regulated, for developers to just pick a patch of land somewhere in the middle of nowhere and uh, build a subdevelopment on it. That's, that's really true. Um, the reason that we have the development patterns that we have is not because of consumer demand. So you're telling me that Connor's apartment up on 57th that is, has hundreds and hundreds of units in it isn't because a bunch of 25-year-old uh, dudes were like, oh my God, can I please live in a huge apartment building down at 57th and Regal? Yeah. I want to live by the strip mall. Yeah. That's, that's not, I don't think that's the millennial dream. I'm a younger generation Xer. It certainly wasn't our dream, Right. but if, if you've talked about the search for housing, I think, um, we've just accepted these limitations without right. thinking about the government structures that contribute to our lack of choice. Yeah. It's probably no surprise then that those structures that allow for this sort of rampant development over native farmland and just wild prairie and forest have had impacts on our local farmers as well as development encroaches toward them. There, there's been farms in Spokane County out on the outskirts that have lost their water because of subdivisions that are slightly uphill from them, pumping up all the water and they have no recourse. Once these developments are done, they're done. So it requires preemptive action from things like the growth boundary and proper enforcement of that and closing the loopholes to keep our farms from going completely dry in some cases. And I know that everybody thinks that their city is special, their area is unique. We're all pretty little snowflakes. No two are the same. But in the case of Spokane and the 
greater farmland around here, the Palouse, but also the stuff north of town and west of town. Everything affected by the epochal, fascinating cycle of the Missoula floods that channeled out our land, took the topsoil down to, you know, the Willamette Valley, Portland area, but then prevailing winds blew it back up over the course of tens of thousands of years. It has really created an ecosystem and an environment for farming that is, not joking, unique in the world. The farmland that we have around Spokane County is very special. And a lot of people don't realize that this is one of the few areas on earth that has deep, rich soil that is also in some places kind of self-watering. You can do dry land farming in areas that we have paved over. Right. We have put subdivisions, sidewalkless, garage fronted subdivisions on top of land that you used to be able to farm without having to irrigate it wow. with a prime soil. And we have to stop making that mistake. We have to do it for our food security. And we also have to do it for our own financial reasons. Those yeah. kinds of developments cost us a lot of money. You've got to build a pump house to get water up that hill. Right. Now, I can already hear people being like, oh, Baumgarten, you said we need more affordable housing. Why wouldn't we go build cheap housing out wherever the land's cheap? Well, because that kind of development is cheaper for the developer and therefore more profitable for the developer, but it's actually more expensive for the rest of us. And it's not just water that's more expensive in these situations. It's every utility. It's every inch of road. So we already have a larger road and freeway system than we can afford to maintain. And we're adding to that every time we add growth. We're also adding to the burden on schools, police, fire department, water system, sewer system. And all that led to a great discussion around where power lies in these matters is with the county. And the county is woefully underattended. And, you know, the county commissioners actually take some pretty decent pains to obscure their efforts and hide from normal folk. But luckily, Kitty's been doing this long enough that she knows how to find them and helps you find them too. County commissioners don't tend to have town halls or public forums. Mm. So where do you find them? You find them at the Greater Spokane Incorporated like annual meetings <laughs> and some of those fancier events um, that don't seem like they're for us, right. but they're not that expensive to show up to. And yeah. I feel like every, someone from every neighborhood council should show up to those forums and ask hard questions about their land use and infrastructure decisions mm. and their health and their aid decisions, all of those things. So yeah, there were so many good clips. I was yas queening through the whole damn interview. And then when it came to make this introduction, I uh, basically turned the intro into a little clips show of this one single episode. Come for the land use discussion. Stay for the tips and tricks on how to make your county commissioner's life as miserable as possible until they actually do things that are in all of our best interest. There's also a discussion about how the county is going to move from three seats to five and what that means for the power of cities like Spokane, how we might actually finally get a little bit of equity among county representation as a result of that. It's a jam-packed episode, folks. All that stuff and more. Kitty Klitsky, FutureWise, coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 30, we just gotta set some boundaries.
Kitty, thanks for coming on range. Thanks for having me. Uh, we, while we were mic checking, this is the sort of activist Kitty is. She just launched right into the action items for people. So we'll save those for the end of the show, but it's going to be in, uh, um, rather than me saying it, it's going to be uh, in Kitty's dulcet tenor. So <laughs> we're here today, dearly beloved, because FutureWise launched this campaign in October called Law Can't Wait, trying to raise awareness and support to revise Washington State's Growth Management Act. So maybe we could just start there. Kitty, what, what is the Growth Management Act and why is it so important? So the Growth Management Act was passed in 1990, and it is the framework that we use for our land use planning. Um, we had a lot of urgency back in the late 80s about runaway sprawl. Mm. And at the time, the Spokane County's urban growth area, it didn't exist. And okay. we were losing tons and tons of farmland all across the state. We were losing a lot of forest land and we're losing a lot of open space and shorelines weren't being protected. Water quality was going down. And so there was kind of a collective freakout across the state. <laughs> what are we going to do about this? runaway growth. So um, some folks got together, some of whom founded FutureWise and some of whom went on to become our representatives in Congress, our senators. Oh, wow. And um, they passed the Growth Management Act. Um, so Maria Cantwell was part of that. We called them the Steel Magnolias. <laughs> and what that does is create a framework for planning how you're going to deal with your population growth. Mm -hmm. The thinking was that population growth is inevitable. Right. And um, so we have to plan for it and we've already kind of let it go a little too long. So right. we need to rein it in. So what it allows jurisdictions to do is do what's called a land quantity analysis mm. and um, just decide and plan how they're going to zone areas um, to have the housing stock they need, the business opportunity they need, but be able to preserve farmland and open space and neighborhood character. Mm. So um, the Gro Growth Management Act gave jurisdictions a framework and some funding to get started doing that planning. And in, in kind of concrete terms, there's basically a line that gets drawn around a city that's like with within certain bounds. And so maybe you could explain it at a kind of a high level uh, what those restrictions are. So say up in up near Five Mile or down near Moran Prairie, there's kind of a line that you're not supposed to go past. So can you talk through that process? Yes. Yeah, so originally... Um, the jurisdictions all had to make a comprehensive plan and there was a lot of language in there about the the goals that the community set but the jurisdictions were also required to draw an urban growth boundary and um, unfortunately the city of or spokane counties was drawn quite large and so we did see a lot of sprawl happen and eat up the moran prairie and five mile prairie and peon prairie a lot of other places yeah. but um this did rein it in. It drew a line and urban growth wasn't supposed to happen outside of that line. It's based on population forecasts and the land quantity analysis, but the first one wasn't done that well. Since then, there's been quite a few updates to the Growth Management Act to rein it in, but none of them quite as major as we need. And it doesn't mean that like I, the where I grew up on like 10 acres of land out in the county, it doesn't mean you can't have like big parcels. What it's meant to do is to stop native prairie from becoming a subdevelopment. Yes. And unfortunately, it doesn't stop all of it. But what it does is encourage cities to grow up, not out. And another reason for doing that is because of the fiscal crisis that we're constantly facing yeah. of deferred maintenance. We already have a larger road and freeway system than we can afford to maintain. And we're adding to that every time we add growth. We're also adding to the burden on schools, police, fire department, water system, sewer system. Right. So there's a really imperative reason or compelling reason 
that we need to grow up and not out. Yeah. It's um, it's about more than saving open space, but open space, the loss of open space and the loss of farmland and the loss of the character of the places you grew up when you live in, when you're from Spokane is the most visible thing that people can relate to yeah. that kind of get the conversation started. Absolutely. New York is a great city, but I spent like 10 or 11 days there a few, like five or six years ago. And by the end, I felt like kind of low key depressed a little bit. And I think I realized it was like, I hadn't seen anything green outside of central park in like forever. And so, you know, we think about the quality of life we want in a place like Spokane and the reason people live here, you know, our open spaces are a big part of that. And it doesn't mean we're in any danger of being coming close to as dense of a city as New York anytime soon, or sort of finding wilderness that far away from us anytime soon. But we have to think about this stuff because I grew up in Chatteroy and I drive up the Elk Chatteroy road, like to my house and I don't recognize it anymore. It used to be a bunch of, you know, small hold farmers, you know, modest houses, sometimes just like families farming out of a trailer or something. And now it's like McMansions with gates at the bottom. And that's a different problem exactly, but it's, it, they're all sort of concomitant with each other. It's like, what, where do we want to put what kinds of development? And insofar as the land at the hinterlands tends to be cheaper, there's a, there's an economic incentive for developers to develop the cheapest land they can find. And therefore there becomes an incentive, like an economic incentive, unless it's regulated for developers to just pick a patch of land somewhere in the middle of nowhere and uh, build a subdevelopment on it. That's, that's really true. Um, the reason that we have the development patterns that we have is not because of consumer demand. Um, people assume that free markets serve them, but um, I grew up in Hilliard and my grandfather lived in Deer Park and we used to count uh, the deer on the way home. Yeah, you don't count yep, deer nope. on the way from Deer Park to Spokane anymore. You're lucky if you see a deer. Um, and people used to snowmobile where North Point Plaza is now. I Absolutely. remember seeing snowmobilers yep. up there. Um, so we've lost a lot. And I don't think anybody wanted to be the person that converted that land and lived out there in those apartments that you see out there. Yeah. The reason is exactly what you say is um, farmers get older and retire. And sometimes there's not we don't have good um, succession programs for farmers to find new farmers to replace their land with. Plus, right. these farmers might not have been saving for retirement. Farming is a tough way to make a living. And so they see their retirement as selling their land to developers. Um, right. And it's a very tempting way to go. And it's cheap for the developers to have that land rezoned. But what I'm, what I'm trying to get to is that the reason that these houses are built the way they are is because those are easy ways to build. They're cheap. And um, if you do it out on the fringe, there's less regulations. You don't have to put right. in curbs. You don't have to put in sidewalks. You don't have to put in proper driveways. Right. Sometimes you just, the car drives right into the garage. And um, those, those patterns are very cheap for developers to build. And they're very generic, easy architectural form. The reason they're doing it is not consumer demand. It's not right. because somebody wants to have to drive 45 minutes to get to work after driving their kid 15 minutes to get to school. So you're telling me that Connor's apartment up on 57th that is, has hundreds and hundreds of units in it isn't because a bunch of 20 uh, five-year-old dudes were like, oh my God, can I please live in a huge apartment building down at 57th and Regal? Yeah. I want to live by the strip mall. Yeah. That's, that's not, I don't think that's the millennial dream. I'm a younger generation Xer. It certainly wasn't our dream, Right. but if, if you've talked about the search for housing, I think um, we've just accepted these limitations without right. thinking about the government structures that contribute to our lack of choice. Yeah. 
So when I was looking for a home recently, now that I have kids, I still wanted to live. I, I, when I was Connor's age, I, well, younger than that, I guess I bought a home very young. I was 19 years old when I bought my first house. It was over in the Logan neighborhood. You know, my bus routes weren't great. Things were getting more and more inconvenient for me. I ended up moving away from living in a single family or a single family home and moving down to Brown's edition and getting parking my 1970 Chevelle (laughs) and walking to work every day downtown. And I never looked back. Um, That car got stolen. I never replaced it. (laughs) Um, It was sad. What I'm trying to say is as a young professional, that was the lifestyle I really wanted. And I didn't even realize that was a lifestyle I really wanted until I had that single family home experience, which was not enriching for me at all. And then when I wanted to come out of that, when I got married, had kids, trying to find something within a two mile radius so that I could keep my carless lifestyle and still have enough space for two kids and pets was really rough. So I had to go outside my I'm in, I'm in the two and a half mile radius from downtown now. And right. I, I'm not super comfortable with it. We got <laughs> higher bus frequency. I'm fine, but there's a lack of housing choice in downtown. Um, yeah. There's very few houses for sale in Brown's edition because everybody wants to live there. Right. We don't have to accept this um, supply and demand situation where the developers are deciding what kind of supply we have. Right. We need to change our government to make it work for us and not just developers and land speculators. Right. And let's just say for a second that one less car on the road, if you really love driving is not a bad thing either. Right. So it's pedestrian culture, people who choose to live, who want to live compact lives close to where they can go. So you can walk as much as possible. It's you're like a rock star at it. I feel like I'm a, uh, I'm like a double a baseball player at it. I'm pretty good at avoiding using my car. The fewer cars on the street, it's better for everybody. So this thing passed in 1990 sounds pretty good, but it's 30 years old. So in the 30 years that it's been around, like what's missing from the current growth management act and what makes this update uh, necessary in your mind? There's, there's a few things looking at equity and systematic racism is one issue that is missing from the growth management act. So we've built some things into the legislation to require communities to take a look at that. Another thing is planning for climate change. There were very few people that knew anything about climate change and what was coming in the late 80s and and 1990 when this was passed. Yeah, Al Gore hadn't invented it yet, so. (laughs) There was one activist in Spokane, actually. His name was um, Julian Powers. I can't heard that name. Yeah, and he was global warming, global warming, global warming, but it took a long time for that issue to really get in our face. And so this um, legislation would require jurisdictions with a good population size like Spokane. So like your mid-sized cities and counties and your larger to plan for greenhouse gas reductions and also to plan for mitigation of climate change impacts and also to take a look at um, how their planning processes are impacting communities of color, people with disabilities, the the entire equity group of issues that yeah. we've 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 come to realize we've been ignoring this whole time as communities when we do planning. Cuz like at the state level you can set goals for environmental impact, you can set goals for equity and inclusion and stuff, but states are just collections of counties and counties are made up of a bunch of little municipalities and so the rubber meets the road at all of those sort of subsidiary jurisdictions. And so you have to sort of build rules around that to get, you know, Kim Jong-Insley just can't decree an end to carbon use. So it needs to sort of trickle down at the policy level. Am I understanding the the sort of dynamics of the problem? 
Yes. Um, unless you have a plan for how you're going to achieve those goals, they're just goals. So Governor Inslee isn't to blame for our goals in the way that they just sit there. Most of those were set in 2009, 2010 under Governor Gregoire. Yeah. And there, I think the reason they sat there is because um, the state tried to kind of put together plans through their state agencies and just kind of giving funding to jurisdictions without much guidance or requirements. Yeah. And so... <laughs> It's been like 12 years later and we still haven't really moved the needle in a meaningful way. So that's why the campaign is called Washington Can't Wait, yeah. because we've had these goals for a long time. We've been working on bills like this since 2008 and wow. we're still we're still in this situation where we haven't meaningfully reduced our greenhouse gas emissions. So um, the state has greenhouse gas reduction goals and vehicle miles traveled goals. This legislation would add those goals into the Growth Management Act and give jurisdictions a framework to actually plan for the reduction of those greenhouse gas and vehicle miles traveled. Um, one of the reasons it's been challenging for even jurisdictions that want to do that on their own, like the city of Spokane, they did a sustainability action plan mm. many years ago as well um, that wasn't very impactful in my opinion either is because you can't just do it alone as one jurisdiction. Right. If you have a traffic system and you have like, you know, 20% of your traffic coming in from Liberty Lake and the Spokane Valley, and you want to reduce vehicle miles traveled as the city of Spokane, what are you going to do about that by yourself? Yeah. That's why we have metropolitan planning organizations. That's why we have joint planning. These jurisdictions overlap on top of each other. And we we get to vote for our mayor and our city council, but we don't get to vote for the Spokane Valley's mayor and the Spokane Valley's city council. Right. So that's why we have a county. And we, but we also don't have a hard border. You know, we don't have a checkpoint that we can exclude people from the valley. No, if we decide absolutely to. not. Yeah, totally. So we have to do these joint planning things. We have to get all of the elected officials together in the same room. And we do get to vote for county commissioners who have a huge outsized role and a lot of power to um, make decisions about community health and infrastructure and transportation just because they're on all of the boards and committees and they have a lot of votes, just the way that we're structuring our local government. Yeah. But people don't keep track of what the county commissioners are up to. They don't hold them accountable for the infrastructure decisions they're making. It's hard for the average citizen to see what they're actually doing. The media is not sitting there at every regional health board meeting and every Spokane regional transportation council meeting and every Spokane transit board meeting and yeah. all of those things that the county commissioners exercise their power at that nobody's watching. Right. So um, it is well, good to have some strong state requirements and state guidelines to make sure these things are happening and to hold these folks accountable. It's also good to elect good county commissioners. Right. Which would be nice. And I want to talk about the county commissioners thing in, in greater detail later. We did a pre-interview yesterday and that was one of the things that struck me. You pointed out that I have a pretty good idea, even though I don't actually physically go to these things or even watch the Zooms during COVID. But like, I know what the city council of our city is doing pretty well because of the way media covers it. Cranks like George McGrath drive in from the Valley <laughs> where he actually lives to come testify at the city council meetings of Spokane where any rules passed have, you know, are completely irrelevant to his life as a Valley resident. He could be spending that time at the county commission. There could be a lot more coverage in the media. It just doesn't seem like there really is. And so you talk about it like a shadow government. And I want to talk about that more later. It's like, th these are the people that sort of, like you're saying, have 
tend to have like majority stakes in all these committees that, you know, well, like, you know, the firing of Bob Lutz, which we've talked about at length, like that is a majority county controlled board. And so we should start paying attention to our county commission. I'll talk more about that later, but I do want to get into the specific bills because this stuff's really, really important. And I want to know, or I want people to sort of get a sense of what's going through right now and how they can maybe push it along if it sounds cool to them. So these updates that you guys are suggesting to the Growth Management Act kind of come in three separate bills that are kind of at different phases of working their way through the legislature right now. The first one I wanted to talk about is House Bill 1220, which is the one piggybacking off of, well, the Terry Anderson conversation I had a couple weeks ago, but also the Verla Spencer and Cam's Rosua conversation that just dropped about incarceration and the way people lose their homes in, in situations like that. 1220 would seek to address housing affordability, but what, what specifically would it do? We have like a, a, a list of bullet point things that it would do. Um, I'll, I'll go through those, but then um, I'll, I, I'll probably have to explain how we, okay. how a jurisdiction would usually implement this because of the way that the GMA works. So okay. all of these are in light of the way the GMA already works. Um, what it would do would require communities to fully plan for a diversity of housing options, including by home type and incomes. So you would include like creating implementation plans and timelines for updating the zoning requirements and the development regulations to achieve those housing options. It would identify and address particular historical racial bias and exclusion in housing and plan and implement policies to undo those historical policies. And as we know, there was just a court case where we um, lost against our county auditor right. trying to get racial covenants off Removed. of people's deeds. Yeah. Right. Yep. So definitely still very relevant. Kind of. We we're kind of hoping that one would be slightly less relevant, <laughs> but um, here we are. Yeah. Um, identify areas with a high risk of displacement and implement policies to prevent displacement. And plan for homeless housing, allowing shelters and permanent supportive housing. That has been a really big issue that some people Huge. aren't aware of. Um, cities and counties can actually have emergency zoning changes just to stop a shelter from coming into areas that they don't think the optics are good for having a shelter at. So um, this would cut through some of that and make it easier for places like Catholic charities or transitions to build a new shelter where they need to build it instead of having to kind of hide them. There's a, there's sort of a two-step that gets done by people who, uh, homeless anti-advocates, let's call them generously. They'll on the one hand say these shelters that are all kind of clustered together downtown, because that tends to be where the services are. It creates a blight, you know, so we can't build any new shelters where the existing shelters are because it's just going to exacerbate and concentrate the problem. We need to build them elsewhere. But then the moment you're like, okay, cool. So let's go up to North Foothills Drive or let's go to somewhere else. Catholic charities often. And this, this was actually the thing that in our pre chat that floored me, this emergency zoning can be like Catholic charities buys a plot of land. They could like go in the next day and restrictively zone it to be like, just in case you're thinking about using that land for housing, don't even fucking think about it. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the way it happens in Seattle. People can fly under the radar. Um, there was actually a emergency zoning push to stop the red lion becoming a temporary homeless shelter, even though red lion was willing to do it. Wow. So, but in Spokane, since the, everybody knows everybody, I right. feel like the city could probably even do it faster yeah. if they wanted to, right. because you find you, if chat, if Catholic charities was even thinking about buying a property, everybody in town would know what they were doing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and actually, I think when they bought down over by the Cracker Building where we have our office, they 
created a shell company under a weird name so they could fly under the radar until the purchase actually happened. Or at least that's a rumor I heard. Wow. I don't think they should have to do that. I know. So that's fascinating to me. You mentioned how, you know, people like the market. That's a situation where they're sort of instituting like a sort of central planning, but only in a way that's like pro developer or pro NIMBYism, where it's like, oh, we want the market to decide. We want you to be able to build skyscrapers on Moran Prairie if you want to, unless it's a homeless shelter, then we want to like, you know, put the kibosh on that. Yes. It's always very interesting how people react to these things. The invisible um, hand of the market works in really mysterious ways, Kitty. It's, it's not though. I think we're all fooling ourselves if we try to believe that we live in a free market. Yeah. There's, there's no such thing. You can't have democracy or infrastructure or peace and a free market. <laughs> you just can't. That's anarchy. And um, anarchy could only work in a super, super enlightened and selfless society right. <laughs> that we don't, we don't does enjoy that, right now. Does that now. remind you of anything? No, me either. <laughs> Is this likely to pass, you think? Yes, they're okay. both doing very well. They've made it out of their committees. Um, they've made it out of their financial committees. So um, 1099 and 1220 are looking forward to floor votes. And so we still we still need support for these bills, but um, there's no reason to feel like we don't have a chance. There's no reason at all. Okay. So then 1099, which you also mentioned, creates rules requiring counties to respond to climate change. So how's it going to do that? It's kind of embedded in the way that GMA works, our expectations for how this would work. Um, just like counties set up an urban growth boundary, what I envision when I'm thinking about this bill is that jurisdictions will use available information and create plans and track greenhouse gas and vehicle miles traveled reduction. So the commerce and ecology are probably going to have to work together to create a tool for this. Um, so um, one of the challenges with these bills is there are fiscal costs to it. They call it a fiscal note, how much the independent staff at the legislature imagine the bill is going to cost to implement. And they're pretty conservative. So um, if your bill actually does something, um, a lot of times it gets a pretty big fiscal note. And yeah. for this one, a lot of the costs associated with the bill would be creating a tool that jurisdictions can use to measure their greenhouse gas emissions or vehicle miles traveled in a consistent way, okay. and also to plan for how to reduce those goals. Same with the housing bill. Um, Commerce is going to have to create a tool for the jurisdictions to um, use to measure their housing needs and make sure they're planning for a diversity of housing stock. So with both bills, there's going to have to be a kind of rulemaking process to figure out how that tool is going to work. That's how I anticipate that tool is going to work in 15 years of working on GMA issues. Yeah. But it could go differently. So can you give me an example, just because I'm, I'm, maybe I'm a glutton for punishment here, but like, give me an, like a, a tool that exists right now. How does it function? Just so that I can understand like what, with, what this tool is. Is it really like an algorithm for assessing sort of, go ahead. No. And that's why we, part of this is we're probably going to also have to award planning grants to these jurisdictions. Okay. So if, if you look at how counties create an urban growth boundary, um, it's, it's kind of a complex process. First, they get um, a series of numbers from the office of financial management that project how much growth the, the area is going to receive. Then the jurisdictions have to meet together and get reports from the planning staff of those jurisdictions to see how much their planning staff think with the current zoning, their 
jurisdiction can absorb. So um, it's kind of like they divvy it up. Like the city of Spokane says, we can we can absorb this much growth with mm. our zoning. And Spokane Valley says we can absorb this much. Airway Heights wants this much. And then the county's kind of left with whatever's left. The remainder. And that they sometimes fight about this because somebody wants an urban growth area expansion, like Airway Heights kind of wanted to expand towards the airport, right? And then yeah. got them in a big bunch of trouble, not necessarily Airways Heights fault because they get pressures from the county as well. So I'm not blaming them as a jurisdiction. But anyways, they have to work it out and they have to they have to take their slice of the population pie mm. and then they have to make sure that their zoning reflects that and the amount of available land they have reflects that. And then what Spokane County does and kind of imposes it on all of these other jurisdictions is they've created something called the market factor. Some jurisdictions use this, some jurisdictions don't, but Spokane, Spokane County uses a particularly high one of 25%. So of all of the land that's available and appropriately zoned for the different uses that um, the counties divide up inside their urban growth boundaries, Spokane County assumes that of that buildable land, 25% of it's never going to get sold. Like the, that whoever owns that property is just going to sit on it forever for the next 20 years. Wow. So um, they don't even use all of it. That, that's the kind of framework that has to be set up. So um, that counties can't pad in weird numbers like 25% of this won't get used or, yeah. you know, 25% of, I, I, I can't really translate it to um, housing or greenhouse gas reductions, but tools like that will have to be used where the jurisdictions basically slice up how much of the greenhouse gas emissions they're going to have to reduce right. inside their jurisdiction and how they're going to do it with transportation planning. That's going to be like vehicle miles traveled. That's going to have to be a very regional right. approach. Right. Because people commute in for well, Deer Park, Chatroy, even further North. I had colleagues, my last sort of day job who commuted in from Coeur d'Alene every day and, and certainly, and, and one who took the bus from Liberty Lake, which is pretty cool. What enforcement mechanisms are there for these things that people actually do this stuff? Therein lies the rub with GMA. Okay. So when people pass the GMA. It was such a great, tool to really plan for future growth in a way that was fiscally responsible and preserve neighborhood character and was environmentally responsible. And so they're giving jurisdictions funding to do it and this great tool to do it. So they like, they hit a triple on their first at bat. And then 30 years later, 30 years later, they realized that some jurisdictions were happy to take the money, do the planning, leave it on the shelf and then just do whatever they want. Mm. And that wasn't really planned for right. in the Growth Management Act. So the only recourse that we have to enforce the Growth Management Act is citizen appeals for the most part. Um, we don't have like an enforcing agency that can say, you can't pass this plan. Somebody has to file an appeal. So they set up the Growth Management Hearings Board for any process-related grievance that might occur, but it ended up being the only enforcement mechanism of the Growth Management Act. So, so it's like the EPA won't directly sue somebody for trying to fill in a wetland. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, or? so the Clean Water Act works similarly. The Clean Water Act is a little stronger though, because if citizens sue a polluter and prove that they are polluting something and the EPA has to take action against them, yeah. the EPA takes action, they make them um, repair that damage, but then the citizens also recoup their legal costs okay. and they can use them for programs like water protection. So 
Clean Water Act lawsuits can pay for themselves. Hmm. We don't have that with the Growth Management Act. These citizens are on their own. They have to appeal and then they have to follow it through the court system. The problem is, even when citizens do this, Spokane County frequently takes advantage of a loophole where if they accept a completed application on that land while the citizens are appealing the project, the developer can go ahead and build it. And we've had that happen multiple times here in Spokane County. Um, One particularly egregious one about probably 14, 13 years ago was an island urban growth area that the county just randomly set up up on the five mile prairie. Let's take a second and explain that. So the reason that there's, it's like a sort of a single continuous border is that you want to sort of build density next to each other. There's, you know, you've got the city of Liberty Lake, which is not the city of Spokane. So that's a separate urban center. But when you're talking about individual urban centers, you don't want to like create, like you said it kind of briefly, I just want to underscore it. An island, what did you call it? An island UGA, I think is what my husband aptly named it. Your husband sued this project. Uh, and I found, I found the lawsuit uh, as we were talking the other day. I was funny. I was just like, Oh, Rick, that's, that's Kitty's husband. He represented the five mile neighborhood council. Yes. Yeah. So who were against the, this expansion. So basically like, so when you expand the UGA, you should do it as sparingly as possible, but you should definitely do it next to an existing growth area because there's already infrastructure. What we talked about, and this probably deserves its own episode. Infrastructure is incredibly expensive and it gets more expensive per person, the less dense the places you're extending that stuff out to. And it's especially bad when you create a little island, like a little orphan growth boundary, where then there's basically like non-growth areas you have to go through, you have to pass through, create a bunch of pipe that doesn't actually lead anywhere to get to this orphaned growth boundary. And every mile of pipe costs money. And every mile of you know fiber optic cable that gets run, every sewer, power lines, streets, roads, all that stuff requires maintenance. Maintenance dollars are reliant on tax income. If you're building in areas where there's no tax income, that puts a higher tax burden on every other tax. So basically, and I want to underscore this, and if I'm saying this too bluntly, please correct me, but every shitty development that gets put out in the Moran Prairie is actually paid for by the people who already exist within the system at a higher rate. Like, like my utility bills go up because of the Moran Prairie developments. Yes, that's partly true, um, depending on who's in control of your utilities. But it also dilutes the tax base for basic things like roads. So um, the county is capped on how much property tax it can charge. So right. it's its hands are literally tied to from making growth pay for itself unless it uses things like impact fees and um, SEPA mitigation fees, which it we would have to do proper planning to really do that. And it, they would also have to have the political will to say, okay, growth is really expensive. We already can't afford to maintain the roads we have. We're going to make this growth pay for itself. And um, so they could use impact fees to mitigate some of those problems, but it also puts a greater burden on the schools that are there and the other services that are there. Mm-hmm. Um, some of which aren't el- eligible to benefit from impact fees. So it's really a good idea to try to con- concentrate growth inside cities that already have the infrastructure, the tax structure, and more taxpayers per inch of infrastructure. Right. So you can pay for your cops, pay for your firefighters. This extends to everything that's sort of 
municipally funded in, mm-hmm. in our lives. I guess needless to say, based on the Growth Management Act, uh, something like an island UGA shouldn't happen, Mm-mm, but it illegal. exists. You can drive up to, you can drive up Five Mile Road and see this uh, development that we're talking about because there's a big literal subdevelopment size loophole. You could drive a subdevelopment through this loophole yes, and frequently you frequently do. People are always driving subdevelopments through the soup hole. So explain this process to me at like three quarter speed so that I understand it. It's like you basically, you can say, Hey, we want to build here. So just explain it to me. I'm going to do a bad job of uh, spoofing it. So just maybe explain it and I'll spoof it on the other side. So what frequently happens is um, a developer decides that they own some land and they say, I've got a gold mine. If I could only subdivide this. Yeah. And so they go to the county and they put in an application for an amendment to the comprehensive plan to rezone their property, which usually requires both zoning and map changes. This was a zoning and a map change and an urban growth area expansion. Um, it's kind of a bad practice to consider expanding the growth, urban growth boundary every year as part of your annual amendment process. Right. Not a very good idea because you need to think about these things comprehensively, but not technically illegal. So the county entertains these kinds of requests every year. Yeah. And this, in this case, the developer was completely separate and isolated from urban growth boundaries up on prime farmland. Yep. And they went ahead and decided they had a gold mine that they were going to subdivide and make a lot of money. And the County went ahead and approved their urban growth area and their zoning change and their map change. And the neighborhood said that that is patently illegal. You can't do this. And they appealed it to the growth management hearing board and the growth management hearing board was like, we agree with you. It is illegal. You cannot do this. You cannot do this. But in the meantime, during that appeal process and neighborhoods usually meet monthly, take a while to get it together, have to fundraise to pay lawyers. Most of the time they have to vote on whether or not to appeal. So it's a, it's a difficult process and the appeal period, the clock is running this whole time. Meanwhile, developer gets their application in immediately. They've already requested this change. They know the moment the county commissioners say yes, they need to get their application in. Once they get that completed application in, that property is vested under the new rules, whether the rules are legal or not, whether there's an appeal process running or not. So they went ahead and broke ground and started building it. Meanwhile, And just to be clear, you're saying you can just put in the application. The application doesn't even have to be accepted. Yes. Back then you could just put in a completed application. So um, then the county would go ahead and approve your permits uh, during this appeal process and say, well, this person is vested. They already put in a completed application. So um, pretty crazy. So the, the neighborhoods are appealing this. Meanwhile, the developer is quietly breaking ground and building the project. The neighborhood wins. The county appeals. Meanwhile, the developer is still completing this project. The county loses the appeal. The neighborhood wins. It goes all the way through the process and it is patently illegal. It gets back to the growth management hearings board because what these courts of appeals do when they when they agree with the growth management hearings board is they send it back to them for the remedy. Right. And the growth management hearings board is like, um, we don't know what the remedy is because you the subdevelopment built, has already built. You built an illegal Island UGA and the county's like, okay, we'll just take it out of the urban growth boundary to come into compliance. And, the, and now we have a subdevelopment that has less lax restrictions because it's not inside of a UGA anymore. So now it, right. Like, well, even when it was, when you, the county's UGA has laxer 
Okay, gotcha. So they don't build to the standards that a city builds, which is really unfortunate because cities usually end up having to annex that. And yeah. so then they have these narrow roads with no sidewalks and no curbs and a lot of other infrastructure issues to deal with when they inherit that urban growth from the county. Right. So like when you talk about working regionally, it really, it either requires rigid or, or just like regulation within certain bounds that actually has teeth and enforcement, or it requires every jurisdiction in a given sort of metropolitan area, say the county, the city, all the small cities around a city to be on the same page about stuff, right? Yes. And that then that allows for a ton of, that's just putting a ton of faith in people, which is fine. I like putting faith in people, but county's growth priorities say, putting this charitably, are 180 degrees opposite from a city's growth priorities the, the county's bad planning is going to impact the city's planning in, in real ways immediately. And it's only going to get worse because eventually the way that that works is cities grow over time. And so they annex bad neighborhoods that then become part of the city uh, growth boundary itself. Yes. It's a vicious cycle. And um, what it what it adds up to is the county punting the costs and the impacts of their bad decisions down the road. They, they're kicking the can down the road just to keep business as usual hopping yeah, yep. and make their developers happy. Um, a lot of these county commissioners that we have now are propped up by developers. That That's who donates to their campaign. That's who organizes for them. That's who knows who they are. That's the faces that they see every day paying attention to what they're doing and lobbying them. Yeah. We don't, we don't get a lot of media coverage of how they work and what they do. Yeah. And I just want to underscore being able to build a development while there's an appeals process going on is like executing a death row inmate who still has appeals left. Right. And, and just like, okay, keep doing those appeals. We're still going to kill this guy. And maybe you'll be vindicated at the end, but the, the guy is still dead the wetland has still been filled in or in the case of five mile prairie, it's like all of this, this native farmland that had been farms for generations. Like I grew up driving up top of the five mile prairie to get from, you know, country homes area to Indian trail where I have relatives. And then I didn't do that road for like 10 years. And then all of a sudden my buddy's got a house up there and I'm like, this whole area has been developed and no, it's like seemingly overnight under the radar to some extent. So what did the five mile neighborhood get out of agonizing over this development and right. fighting so hard against it and telling their story over and over again to the legislature? We have been working on a bill for 12 years now to try to close this vesting loophole. No. And um, so Senate Bill 5042 is the bill that we're running right now to try and make it so that your, your permit and your vesting does not go into effect until your appeal period is run out so that neighborhoods actually have a chance to stand up for the law, to stand up for their neighborhood character and to stand up for farmland. Um, the farmland that we have around Spokane County is very special. And a lot of people don't realize that this is one of the few areas on earth that has deep, rich soil that is also in some places kind of self-watering. Mm. You can do dry land farming in areas that we have paved over. Right. We have put subdivisions, sidewalkless, garage fronted subdivisions on top of land that you used to be able to farm without having to irrigate it wow. with uh, prime soil. And we have to stop making that mistake. We have to do it for our food security. And we also have to do it for our own financial reasons. Those yeah. kinds of developments cost us a lot of money. You've got to build a pump house to get water up that hill. Right. Meanwhile, we have hundred year old farms going dry because we're allowing subdivisions that use 
wells and suck up that water to take table. The water, the, yeah. And so you've got a you've got a farm. There, there's been farms in Spokane County out on the outskirts that have lost their water because of subdivisions that are slightly uphill from them. Wow. pumping up all the water and they have no recourse. It's really hard to prove because we just don't have the geo geological history there and um, investigative powers for that. It's really hard for those farmers to prove that they were damaged by that development. Right. Plus after that development is built and sold, who owns that development anymore? The right. developer is no longer culpable. They've washed their hands. It's and the individual gone. homeowners now. In the, or the, so we yeah. have to do a better job planning for our water supply, planning for our infrastructure, planning for our farmland stock. And we can't do any of this. These first two bills that I talked about that would improve the GMA, improve the housing situation, prepare us for climate change, and all of the planning that we do um, that communities weigh in on and do their public participation and vision about and try to get going doesn't matter if a developer can walk in and ignore those laws yeah. because we have politicians that are willing to overlook the law and approve their application and go ahead and build it anyway. There's impacts to that every time that happens. So the 5042 that, that closes the vesting loophole, that's kind of the whole enchilada. Like that really, that is what kind of helps establish an actual enforcement regime to give the Growth Management Act more teeth. So that's going to be a tougher fight. So maybe people should write their legislators about all three of these bills, but really, really emphasize 5042. Or what do you think? Um, I think people in Spokane County should, because um, believe it or not, it's not a fairy tale. There are jurisdictions that wholeheartedly plan under the Growth Management Act, wow. and they can't relate to this problem. They actually uh. don't approve urban growth area expansions outside of the normal planning horizon. They right. don't approve things that they know are illegal. So there's yeah. a lot of legislators across the state that can't relate to this problem. And right now it's it's sitting there waiting for a Senate floor vote. And um, it's been difficult to come up with the votes because there are people living in jurisdictions that don't face this problem. So yeah. if they don't hear the story of Spokane and why it's so important to protect us from this loophole and yeah. give neighborhoods and citizens. And in the case of Spokane's rogue urban growth area expansions, we had the Department of Commerce, WashDOT, which is the Washington Department of Transportation, the Department of Fish and Wildlife, several neighborhoods, and FutureWise appeal the urban growth <laughs> area God. expansion. And if those developers had it together, there were several vested projects in our discussion. And wow. so they could have gotten built while even the state is appealing. The multiple Spokane agencies County, the state. Multiple Every agencies in the state are appealing the attorney's general's office was part of the appeal Wow, there. That's how patently wrong it was. And yet stuff could get built. And, and people have a hard time really understanding the plight because in places in denser places like King County say, it's like the County is on board with the city and all of the littler cities around it to be like, yeah, no, we actually do want to contain growth. We do want to build densely. We do want to have, you know, multi-unit, uh, family stock, even in cities like Aberdeen or whatever, you know, the smaller, you know, bedroom communities of Seattle, this sort of rogue UGA creation doesn't happen in jurisdictions like that. So the legislatures are like, what's, what's the problem? But yes. what we have is a, an intense difference of opinion at these jurisdictional levels between the city and the county about how to do this stuff. And so the, the county can go rogue and then the city has to deal with it. And it's happened in other counties too, Snohomish County, Clark County. Yeah. Um, but 
Yes. Some of those very large um, counties that do a ton of investment in planning, they don't get it. We, we talked briefly, and I want to come back to it, about the importance of county government and how it's overlooked, how it's, you know, profoundly affects our lives and not enough people to pay attention to it. So, and this is where like a lot of this land use stuff, rubber meets the road. How can people get more involved in county government? What do you, what do you suggest as a person who's been uh, screaming at these uh, ivory towers for 15 years? Like, what do you do? I don't blame anybody for not being aware of what our county commissioners are doing. It's pretty hard to see because um, their their hearings, they take testimony, but they vote in separate deliberation hearings where there's no testimony and mm. kind of in secret. There's very little incentive for the public to show up to those. Right. So for many years, um, when we were trying to ban rural cluster developments on small track agricultural land in areas like Green Bluff, um, we had to not only go to our hearings and testify, but actually sit there and watch them deliberate with like a dozen farmers around me, just stare them down while they do it. Wow. And they would keep punting and punting and rescheduling because they didn't want to vote against this in front of us while we we're watching them. Wow. And so we had to just keep showing up and we finally got that passed. That's incredible. Um, we shouldn't have to do that. So yeah. here's some things that are changing. We are going to be going up to five commissioners. Yeah. And we so we have an opportunity with those elections to really make our core issues that are important to us part of the discussion. And if I think if we keep um, bringing those issues up in public forums, when your TV station has a forum or has a questionnaire or has a someone running for office come up onto their show, call in and ask questions for the county commissioners yeah. that that show that you understand what they do so that the media will start covering what they do. Right. And what they do is they sit on all of the boards and commissions that run regional governance. So the health board, right. um, they controlled the COVID relief dollars and just sat on them, talked about using them for a jail, didn't do good rental assistance programs, right. all of those things that happen. $92 million, I think. The, the county commissioners own that problem. They, yeah. they own the firing of our health officer. They own a lot of the, the poor right. transportation and land use decisions in the community. So trying to at least get the media to pay attention to what happens on boards like the Spokane Regional Transportation Council and the STA board and the health district board right. is important. You can't sit and watch all of those things. Nobody has time for that. But we can ask questions during people's candidacies to make sure that they're seen as election issues and we can ask questions during any public forums or town halls. County commissioners don't tend to have town halls or public forums. Mm. So where do you find them? You find them at the Greater Spokane Incorporated like annual meetings <laughs> and some of those fancier events um, that don't seem like they're for us, right. but they're not that expensive to show up to. Yeah. And I feel like every, someone from every neighborhood council should show up to those forums and ask hard questions about their land use and infrastructure decisions. Mm. And their health and their aid decisions, all of those things. So um, I also think we need better candidates to run. And I think we need to pay attention to the redistricting process. So we're having a normal redistricting process coming up based on the census. And then we're also having a new redistricting process come up to create these new county commissioner districts. And the other thing that the new county commission structure is going to do is take the final general election from a countywide to staying in the district. So what happens now is a candidate will get nominated in the specific district. There's three districts in the county. But then once you go to the general for the final thing, the whole county votes, right? And the, yes. the county leans right. And so that's why we have three Republican commissioners. 
this will increase the number to five commissioners, but then it also sort of keeps it in the district by district level. So at the district level, you're going to have autonomy over who your representative is. It's not like, oh, I voted for Kitty because she's in my district, but nobody else in the county wants Kitty. So I don't get Kitty, even though she was our, you know, the nominee that would have won if we would have kept it in our district. Yes. Yeah, so right now we only have one kind of urban-ish district. And what's been happening for the last decade is somebody will run in that district and do amazingly well in the primary. And then um, more than half the time when they get to the general, the person that they, they killed in the primary somehow wins yep. and it's because it's a countywide general election. So this right. will be the first time that we will have true district representation That's awesome. at the county. So um, you will know who your county commissioner is if you pay attention and you can start calling them and holding them accountable right now. Um, if you're urban, your county commissioner is Al French and yeah. you can call him and you can try to hold him accountable. But right now what's been protecting him is that at large countywide vote at the end of the election. Right. And he's a developer. So, you know, it's like we, we voted in a developer. We should expect to get pro developer policies from a developer with these changes. There's some hope that there will be, we'll, we'll be able to elect people who are not anti-growth, but just like pro denser, smarter growth. Yes. Okay. So last question. This is the positive one. Simultaneously. And I mean, this is a compliment. I swear you're one of the like most consistently angry people I've ever met, but you're also one of the, <laughs> the most consistently kind of hopeful. Like there's no, there's no doomerism in you at all. Uh, at least that I've seen and I've known you for a little while. So what has given you hope over the years? What about these just on, I mean, like talking about these processes, exhausts me just talking about them in order to make this change. It's slow. It's deliberative. It takes a while. There's a lot of forces pushing against you. So in 15 years of doing this work, what has kept you hopeful and what, what gives you hope in this moment? Wow. That's a tough question, Luke. Um, I think there's a reason that people give birth a second time and it's not <laughs> because birth was like easier survivable. Okay. I think it's a little bit of amnesia, a little bit of irrational hope and a little bit of it has to get better. Like our survival is tied up in all of these decisions that we're making. I, I, you know, I've been in Spokane for 43 years and having lived through a lot of cycles of bad decisions, I think that the impacts are so bad and so disheartening and I can't, I can't live with them. So I have to keep fighting through this. And it was really frustrating in 2008 have worked really hard for some candidates and watched our nation have a Democratic president, a Democratic majority in Congress, and then Washington state to have a Democratic governor and a Democratic supermajority in the legislature. And they all punted climate change. They yeah. all punted. And I was working really hard on climate change legislation in 2009, 2010. Yeah. That was really, really, really rough to see. And it made me angry, but it didn't make me want to just like go home and not hold people accountable. I feel like the more that they punt, the more that they kick the can down the road, the more aggrieved I am and the more righteous my anger is. <laughs> and so I will keep bringing it back until they do something. And I think we're all going to have to do that. Um, yes, rest. Yes, do things that make you happy, but you have to keep coming back because they're not going anywhere and we're still here. Right. So 
I, I don't, I don't know, Luke. And, and, and the, the people on the other side of this debate have an economic incentive to keep coming back. The only thing that's going to keep us coming back is the, is the purity of our rage. <laughs> for me, and, hopefully you've got better reasons, <laughs> but for me, I like purity of rage as a reason. It's fine, but, yeah. but it's important, right? So if you believe and, and, and that, that makes it in some ways a tougher fight because economic incentives are pretty obvious. You, you know, you can buy a, you know, jet ski with your persistence, like for people who just want to live a better life, it's maybe a little bit more abstract, but it does, you know, make life more livable at a, at a more sort of human scale. And so to keep pushing, what we're fighting for is the city we want. Yeah. I mean, you're going to get tired of your jet ski. I had a jet ski in my youth for a while. <laughs> I have to confess. You're and never going to get tired of walkable communities. I had one great summer with that thing, but you know what? I still went home every week and I had to live in my neighborhood and yeah. look at my neighbors every day and see what was happening to the planet. Yeah. Jet skis are motorized. Recreation is really bad for the planet. It's fun for a little while, but yeah. you still have to go home every day and look at those impacts and you're still spending most of your time in the city that you live in yeah. and it still needs to be a better place. So I, I think I probably should say, you know, I have children think of the children <laughs> and I do think of my children, but I also think of what I've gone through yeah. to, to get where I am today and what I needed and what I didn't need. And what I need is a good livable community with opportunity for everyone. Yeah. And not necessarily motorized recreation or, you know, fast fashion. Keep fighting for the things uh, we love and we need uh, and, and, and keep fighting for a better, a more equitable society for everyone. Katie Klitsky, thank you so much for coming on. This was an amazing conversation. I'm glad that even though you had grew up in close proximity to Deer Park, Washington, uh, I still, you're, and that, that aggrieves me as a Riverside guy. Uh, they were our rivals, but no, uh, I grew up in Hilliard. My grandpa was in Deer Park. Okay. So you were, but you were Deer Park adjacent though. I guess Ca like Elk Camden area. There's like five generations of my family. Really? There. See, it's crazy. Ooh, go, go crawdad hunting in, uh, in the Elk Park. <laughs> Done that a time or two. Yeah. There's a little store up there where I'd go after church and get a, a peanut M&Ms every morning. <laughs> Every Sunday morning. All right, Katie, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. And we've got to, we've got to preserve the crawdads in uh, Elk Creek and a future for places like the Backwoods store. So thank you so much for your work uh, and good luck with the campaign. Thank you, Luke. Thank you for being interested in this nerdy stuff. Well, it's, it's not going to be a surprise to the listeners, but I'm a nerd. So, <laughs> All right. See ya. Thanks. I already know I'm going to be looking for excuses to invite Katie back on the pod. May the fire of your righteous indignation be fueled by your depth of knowledge for the subject you're passionate about. If that's not like an Irish blessing, it really should be. Kind of want to get it like tattooed on my calf in Gaelic or something. That's really what I think Kitty brings to everything she works on, at least in the time that I've known her. All right, I'm going to leave it there. If you like range and you want to support us, the work we're doing, we keep it free for everyone always because we believe that access to interviews like Kitty, you know, inspiration and knowledge, understanding of the fights that are going on in their communities in places that people don't often go, right? We just talked about how people don't go to a lot of county commission meetings because it's poorly understood how much power is held in those positions. That's one of the things we're trying to expose here at Range. So if you like that, if you want to support it and you want it to stay free for folks who might be able to take part but might not have the money 
to, to support what we're trying to do so they can understand their communities better. And, it, and frankly, is help them catch up with people who are much more privileged than they are and who are acting in their self-interest day in, day out. It would be awesome if you can afford it to support the work we're doing here at rangemedia.co. It's 10 bucks a month or 100 bucks a year. Rangemedia.co, I think, slash subscribe is the direct link to subscribe. I'm going to leave it like I promised I would with Kitty's dulcet, dulcet, I think it's a tenor. I don't really know anything about vocal range, but sounds like she's got a tenor pointing you to the specific places at the FutureWise website where you can get more information about all three of these uh, bills working their way through the legislature right now. So the links to take action on these super important bills are futurewise.org slash SB5042. That's the vesting bill. Futurewise.org slash 1099. That's the climate and GMA update bill. And futurewise.org slash 1220. And that's the housing bill. God, she's a natural. All right, y'all, you know what to do. Go take action. Thanks again to Speak Studios. My editing and recording partner, Connor Bacon, couldn't do it without you, my man. Especially this week, we had some... We had to work through some technical difficulties. We're still working on it, guys. We're still getting better every day, incrementally, uh, and couldn't do it without Connor. Links to take action in the show notes, as always. Until next week, everyone. Bye.